The scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. The word of God speaks to us. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came out one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out of him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know of this and told them to give her something to eat. This is God's word to us. Guys, good morning. How you doing? Good. Hey, it's, uh, it's really good for my heart to be with you guys today, and uh, super fun to see some old friends and meet some new friends. If we haven't met yet, my name is Josh Curry. I'm one of the pastors of Frontline Church, and in 2005, God called my wife and I to plant our downtown congregation, and it's been, I think, seven months since I've been with you guys. I have missed you so much. At the beginning of the year, our central elders asked me to step back in and lead through a transition in becoming the lead pastor of our downtown congregation again. And uh, it's been seven months of tons of God's grace. God's been really meeting us and doing some profound things. And yet that's also meant for the first seven months that I couldn't travel and get to visit our congregations. And so I've thought about you. I've been praying for you. I've been so thankful to God for what's happening in this congregation. And I'm just so full of gratitude for the leaders that are serving this church and serving this city. So thank you for letting me be here. It's an honor. It's a privilege. I deeply love you. And I can't wait to share God's word with you today. So I'm going to pray for you, ask you to pray for me, and we're going to dive in. Father, I'm so thankful for the gift of getting to sing with my friends today. 
Um, I don't know about anybody else in this room, but I know that my heart needed to sing those words. I'm so thankful that in song, something can happen through your spirit that's really powerful. Our heads and our hearts can come together. And we can say things that are true and reliable that you've revealed in your word, but we can have our hearts catch up with the truth. We can have our affections deepened. We can have our desires grow. We can be reminded that you are better than all the other things of this world. And so even as we got to experience that, I hope today, I pray that we would experience that even further as we open this text. Holy Spirit, I wanna specifically thank you for inspiring Mark to record what happened in this moment. Thanks for giving this to us. This is a beautiful text. This is a beautiful gift. And I pray that it wouldn't be lost on us. I pray that we wouldn't just rush by it. I pray that you would give us the grace to not think about what we have to do this afternoon, but to be fully present and available for you to form us. We pray all this in and through Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Hey, so let me be up front. I don't have any clever introduction for our text today. Um, I don't have a joke. I don't have a witty story. I don't have a cool hook. And I think the reason for that is as I've sat with this text for two weeks now, I just can't get past the fact that this is one of those places in scripture where the heart of Jesus is just crystal clear. Like I actually think, and it occurred to me this morning as we were singing, that if there was one scripture that I could have on a desert island, or if I knew I was going to jail and I could have one page of my Bible this text is in the running for what I would want to take. Because in this text, what we're introduced to is the very heart of Jesus. And here's what's crazy about seeing Jesus. If you see him clearly, Jesus himself said that you also have seen his father. In fact, if you get who Jesus is, the heart of Jesus, the desires of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the mercy and love of Jesus, if you behold him rightly, you're actually getting a glimpse of the fullness of God in the flesh. Meaning the most important thing in your life and in my life is that we would encounter our creator and redeemer and know him and have our lives line up with the purpose for which we were created. And that can't happen through a pilgrimage or through going to a sweat lodge or through meditating on the universe itself. That happens when you meet Jesus. And so today we're gonna walk through this text and encounter the heart of Jesus and see the heart of Jesus' father as we see the heart of Jesus for you and for me. So take your Bibles, come with me. I wanna show you three things in our text today. The first thing I want you to see is the external and the internal resistance to faith. There's an external and an internal resistance to faith. And even though 2,000 years ago in Judea, the culture was radically different than Edmond, Oklahoma, there's still 2,000 years later, external and internal resistors to trusting Jesus. Take your Bible, look at verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him. And he was beside the sea. And then one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, seeing him, he fell at his feet. And he implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. 
who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. In the life of Jairus and in the life of this woman, although they're profoundly different, they both experience external and internal barriers to trusting Jesus. I want you to look at Jairus with me. This is a guy that scripture tells us is a ruler of the synagogue. Now, that doesn't mean that he was a rabbi. It means that he was an official. He was an administrator. He was an overseer. And what's crazy, and the way that you have to actually understand this guy's story is by pulling back and understanding the context. The synagogue was full of people that even at this point in the Gospel of Mark are starting to build objections and schemes against Jesus. They see Jesus as a threat to their power, to their position, to their prominence. Many of them see Jesus as a heretic, as a false prophet. They see Jesus as another upstart that has the potential for turning the religious life of Israel upside down and as a possible threat to the safety and security of the nation itself if Rome decides to rise up. And so here's this guy, Jairus, And he's going through a crisis in his life. He's experiencing the tragic potential loss of his daughter. And he's seen Jesus do profound things. But the entire system that he's a part of and track with me, his livelihood itself comes from that system. And he's in this moment where he's caught between a profound dilemma. Does he go along with the flow, the current of the synagogue, or does he risk his reputation Does he risk his livelihood to fall at the feet of Jesus and ask for Jesus' help? I want you to think about that. In an honor-shame culture where to lose your dignity would be losing everything, here's this man that's scraped and he's worked and he's been educated and he's labored to rise in the ranks to be a leader of the synagogue. And now he's going to associate with a man that the synagogue thinks is toxic and subversive. He has so much pressure. And not only that, but think about this. I'm sure that Jairus did the mental math. Like, what if I risk my standing in the synagogue and I go to this teacher, this prophet, this rabbi, and I fall at his feet? What if he also rejects me? Like, doesn't it make human sense if you didn't already know the heart of Jesus that Jesus might just look at Jairus and say, hey, man, I know what team you're on. Like, I know that you're a part of the group of guys that's plotting against me even now. Why would I help you? Go and ask them to help you. Go get another rabbi to pray for your daughter. And so in Jairus' life, listen, there's every external thing in the world against him falling at the feet of Jesus, but all that pales in comparison to the internal resistance. Internally, this is a man that's gripped with fear. Internally, this is a man who's built his identity on his standing. Internally, he has to maintain decorum and dignity in an honor-shame culture. And in the midst of all that, what we see is that he literally, in the point of desperation, risks everything, rejection from the synagogue, rejection from this teacher, Jesus, and he falls at the feet of Jesus and pleads for help. And then we get to the woman. And the woman's radically different than Jairus. Jairus is a man of power. He has privilege. He has authority in the nation of Israel. But what we know about this woman is that she would have been considered ceremonially ceremonially unclean based on old covenant purity laws. 
She suffered from the discharge of blood for 12 years, which in their purity culture and their purity laws would have meant that she would have been unclean and unable to participate in the life of the synagogue. This is a woman who, if she touched another person in Israel, that person would be considered unclean. And if a person that was clean even touched a garment that this woman had worn or sat in a seat where she had sat or laid down in a bed in which she had laid, they would be considered unclean. So think about that. Like, this is one of the most communal cultures in the history of humanity. A culture where your belonging is everything. A culture where your community is everything. Where the only safety net you had was your community. And now due to her ceremonial uncleanliness, she's pushed to the margins. She's on the edge. She's isolated from all the people that she needs to see her and love her and care for her. And not only the isolation, but this is a woman that suffered profoundly. Like, she spent all that, she's, all that she had. She's gone from doctor to doctor to doctor, and I'm sure at some point, like, she's throwing up Hail Mary passes, trying the weirdest stuff that she could possibly think of in hopes that somebody could cure her, and instead of her getting better, she's gotten worse, and now she's alone, she's unclean, she's broke, and she's suffering. And for her to walk into a crowd of people is a profound risk. Think about the external resistance to faith. Like, if somebody in that crowd recognizes her, they would have had the right to call her out and rebuke her and further ostracize her and discipline her for risking the purity of the other people in the crowd. And what happens if she touches this rabbi who is a man of holiness, a man of purity, and he turns around and sees her and rebukes her? What happens if she incurs not only more shame from her community, but more shame from the very person that she's banking on to help her? And internally, think about what had to be happening in her human heart. Like, this is a woman who is profoundly shamed. Shame is not just a sense of what we've done being bad, but shame is a sense of who we are is unworthy of love. This is a woman whose heart would have been so weighed down in shame and so full of fear and gripped by anxiety. And she had to. I know that this is a story that celebrates the amazing miracle of her faith in Jesus, but up to that point, don't you think that there had to be some deep cynicism? Like everywhere she's turned for help, she's been shut down, she's been fleeced, she's been abused, people have sold her all kinds of potions and remedies and nothing's helped her. And so these two people track with me, externally and internally, everything in the world is stacked against them falling at the feet of Jesus and they're actually not that different than you and me today. If you're a Christian or a non-Christian, there are profound external and internal resistances to faith. If you're a Christian, I can almost guarantee you that like me, there are areas in your life where Jesus is asking for more trust and more obedience. There's places where he's saying, hey, will you really follow me at work? Will you really be salt and light? Will you risk relationships to proclaim my gospel? Will you trust me with your singleness? Will you trust me more with your finances? Will you follow me to this place that might be difficult? And externally, we can have our reputation. We can have our dignity. We can be driven by all the things that we think we have to have in life that seem more important than Jesus to turn away from him. And if you're not a Christian, like this is a really difficult moment to trust in Jesus. 
Christianity is not just seen in our cultural moment as being one way among many. It's seen as being on the wrong side of history. To become a Christian in the eyes of many of your friends and relatives would be to get in bed with the very forces that they think are the most destructive in the world. And internally, to trust in Jesus is to say yes to a king. What's that gonna cost you? What might he ask from you? Where might he take you? What might he demand of you? And what I want you to see is that in the midst of all of that resistance, something really beautiful happens for these two people. Their desperation turns into faith. Their desperation turns into faith. Look what happens to both of them. This is really amazing. For Jairus, he falls at the feet of Jesus. He risks everything in his desperation and he trusts Christ. And Jesus actually goes with him. For the woman, she presses through the resistance and lays hold of his garment. Now, what's interesting about this is that on the surface, these people should have nothing in common in the world. Here's a guy with money and power and prestige and honor. Here's a woman that's marginalized, that's poor, that's broke and ashamed. But what they have in common is far deeper than what separates them. What they have in common is deep human desperation that only Jesus can meet. And what I want to say is that maybe in our cultural moment, this could be one of the most powerful things that the people of God could reclaim. That whether you're conservative or whether you're progressive, whether you're wealthy or whether you're poor, in a culture that's celebrating our differences more than what brings us together, in a culture that's driven by identity politics on the left and the right, maybe, just maybe, the gift that the church could give the world in this moment is reminding people that whoever you vote for and wherever you live and whatever your skin tone is, is way less important than what brings us together, and that's a desperate need for a savior who actually has the answers for people across the globe, no matter what your background is, no matter what's in your bank account. Here's what's crazy. Jesus tells this parable, and it's a parable that's really interesting about desperation. Let me read it to you. It's brief. This comes from Luke chapter 14. He said to them, a man once gave a great banquet, and he invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. And they all alike began to make excuses. Now, I want you to look at their excuses because they're not bad things. They're not like, hey, I'm not gonna come to the banquet because I'm gonna get drunk or commit adultery or rob a bank. Look at why they don't come to the banquet. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them, please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and he reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry. And he said to his servant, go quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you've commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. It's amazing. This parable that Jesus tells about the kingdom of God being like a banquet is a reminder that sometimes the thing that keeps us from faith in Jesus is not that we're shooting heroin into our veins. Sometimes the thing that keeps us from faith in Jesus 
is that we're more obsessed with good things that are gifts from God than we are with how desperately we need the forgiveness and mercy of God. Getting married is not a bad thing. It can be a gift. Having a field to work is not a bad thing. The Bible is very pro-vocation. It's for you having a job and doing the best you can with your gifts. The Bible's not even against the people of God acquiring wealth if they do that as good stewards and if they're cautious. But the Bible says really clearly it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. What's that saying? That it's sinful to be wealthy? No. What it's saying is that it's dangerous when you can have a life of comfort and beauty and family and work if those things distract you from the core need of your being, which is not a raise or a promotion or another kid or a spouse. It's actually being at the banquet hall with the king. And I just think that maybe, just maybe, this is the greatest threat facing our church, especially our Edmond and our downtown congregations. We live in beautiful cities and our cities are growing and there's so many wonderful things to do and unemployment in our cities is relatively low and there's ways to work hard and there's ways to collaborate and there's things to do and there's great places to eat and there's parks and even dog parks are proliferating in our city and and all those things are great and I'm an OKC guy to the bone and I love it here but maybe the greatest danger is that we can live a life where we're inoculated to just how deep our need is, we can forget that we're desperate. And what happens for these two people is they encounter in a moment of crisis just how much they need Jesus. And their desperation turns to faith. Jesus says, woman, he says, your faith has made you whole. He says to Jairus, don't fear but believe. And in that moment, their darkest their darkest hour turns into the most profound encounter with Jesus. That's something that God himself can do. The spirit of God gives them the gift of faith to trust in Jesus in the midst of all of their desperation. And my prayer for you and my prayer for me is that we wouldn't have to have an external or an internal crisis before we realize that we're desperate, that we would have our eyes open to our desperation daily. Jesus in this particular text, is so kind and so generous to invite these two people in their darkest hour to him. And I just want to say, like, maybe you're going through a dark hour today yourself. Maybe it's about your health or your marriage or your kids or dreams that have not been fulfilled. Or maybe everything is going great and it's awesome and life feels good. No matter where you're at today, the reality is, Jesus is not overwhelmed by how badly you need him. He actually wants to meet you in your need. So their desperation in this text turns to faith. Now let me say this really as clearly as I can possibly say it. Uh, Faith is not a vibe. Faith is not a mood. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is trusting in Jesus. And in this story, what we see is that faith in Jesus overcomes hopelessness. Faith in Jesus overcomes the fear of man that should have paralyzed both Jairus and this woman. Faith in Jesus overcomes man-centered religion and superstition. Faith in Jesus overcomes the roadblock of dignity. Turning to Jesus and trusting in Jesus overcomes all of those barriers, internal and external, and leads them to an encounter with God himself. 
And this leads to the last thing, and I'll be brief. Number three, I want you to see the frightening power and the shocking tenderness of Jesus. And you need both of those to be a real Christian. There's churches and denominations that want one without the other. There's places and people that want to emphasize the tenderness of Jesus to the exclusion of his glory. And there's people and churches that want to emphasize the glory of Jesus to the exclusion of his mercy. And we need both together. This particular story of these two miracles is in the context of a couple other miracles in the Gospel of Mark. We've studied how Jesus calmed the storm. He spoke and the wind stopped, and the waves calmed down. And in the boat, what happened? His disciples saw his power over the wind and the waves, and they were terrified. In this story, right before this happened, we see that Jesus speaks a word, and a man oppressed by demons is set free. And the crowd around that man, his community, is terrified, and they ask Jesus to leave town. In this story, Jesus heals the woman and she, she is actually gripped with fear. She's afraid. And then Jesus raises the little girl from the dead, and it says the people in the room were amazed. In these four miracles, here's what we see. Jesus has power over nature. He has power over the demonic in the kingdom of darkness. He has power over sickness and disease, and he has power even over death itself. This is overwhelming. Jesus has all authority and all power. And every time he uses that authority and that power, the people around him, even the people that love him, are gripped with a holy sense of fear and wonder. And I think this is something that we've lost as a people. Like, I love to do backcountry stuff with friends. I like to get into places that are totally off the beaten path and go to dangerous spots. And I, I don't like to do that, however, with people that act like they're at Disneyland that don't understand the dangers involved. Um, this year is my son's senior year, and I'm taking him to my favorite place in the world for a trip. We're going down to Baja, Mexico, to this beautiful place on the Sea of Cortez that is the spearfishing mecca of the world. It is epic. And we're gonna go out offshore, sometimes 50, 60 miles offshore. We're gonna be in the water with predators. We're gonna be doing dangerous things. And, and I asked a couple of guys to go with us who are people who understand just how sobering that situation is. People that take it seriously, that are not flippant, that are not trite, that have their head on a swivel, that are gonna get each other's backs, that are gonna pay attention. And I tell you that because I think what's happened in the church is that we've lost a healthy sense of awe and wonder around Jesus. We've tried to reduce him to just our buddy. And through the inclusion of self-help pop psychology in the church, we've lost the ability to realize that Jesus actually has the authority to command obedience and allegiance from his people. That if you were to see Jesus today, like John in the book of Revelation, you would be overwhelmed with the authority and majesty of Jesus. You would fall at his feet like John did. And I think in our moment when we disagree with something Jesus teaches or with something that's in scripture that points to obedience to Jesus, we sort of pick and choose what we want to obey because we've made Jesus our pal and our buddy more than our king. Jesus is to be rightfully feared and obeyed. But listen, he's also the king of mercy. He's the king of tenderness. Look what happens to Jairus. Um, Jairus falls at Jesus' feet and Jesus goes with him, Mark says. Meaning like Jesus doesn't reject him. 
He doesn't say, hey man, you're a part of the synagogue. I don't want anything to do with you. Jesus stops what he's doing to go with this man. Jesus actually names the internal fear when a servant of the synagogue ruler comes and says, don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter is dead. Jesus looks at him and he cares enough about him to name what's happening in his chest. He says, don't be afraid, only believe. And then the thing that blows me away the most is that Jesus goes to the darkest, most terrifying place on planet earth. It's the house of mourning for a parent that's bereaved of a child. Like there's not a harder place to go. And Jesus walks into that place. He goes to a place where there's professional mourners wailing. He stands with a mother and a father that have lost a child. He goes to them to their darkest place in their darkest hour because he cares. That's the mercy of Jesus. And maybe for some of you, the thing you need to hear more than anything else today is that Jesus wants to meet you in those places where you're mourning. Places of grief and places of loss, don't turn him off. He actually wants to show you tender mercy there. When Jesus said on the Sermon of the Mount, blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted, we try to make that an abstraction or like that's a principle. And the thing about what he's saying is not that it's an abstract principle. What he's saying is the truth about a person that Jesus is the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and he actually draws near to the brokenhearted in their time of need. And then we see with the woman, she touches Jesus, and Jesus doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't embarrass her. He doesn't out her. He looks for her, first of all. He wants to see who laid hold of his garment and received his power. He wants to encounter her face to face. He doesn't want it to be anonymous. He cares about her. And then he doesn't embarrass her. He doesn't proclaim loudly, you're unclean, how dare you touch me? He's tender. In fact, think about what he says. He calls her daughter. He's reflecting the heart of his heavenly father to this woman that's known so much embarrassment and shame and rejection. Jesus sees her and he calls her daughter. And then he goes into the place of mourning and he touches the little girl by her hand. He raises her up. He says, Talitha Kumi, little girl arise. He tenderly raises her out of the jaws of death. And then, I love this, he reminds the group of people that I'm sure were in a frenzy, just freaking out because of what they've just seen, that she needs something to eat. (laughs) What we see is this majesty and this power that rightly requires trembling and obedience, and yet what we see is the mercy and tenderness of Jesus at every single turn. I wanna tell you one more thing before I pray for you. One more thing in this text that's shocking about the tenderness and authority of Jesus. In the old covenant, if the unclean touched the clean, the clean became unclean. So if this woman, based on old covenant law, touched a person or a thing that was clean, it would become unclean. If you touched a dead body and you were clean, you were then unclean. Something happens in the life of Jesus, in his incarnation, in his ministry, that profoundly reverses that, Jesus is touched by this woman who was ceremonially unclean. He doesn't become unclean. She becomes clean. Jesus touches a dead body, and instead of him being defiled by the body and being unclean, the little girl is raised from the dead and made clean. This is pointing us to the reality of what he's going to do through the cross and resurrection, that he who is clean is going to be counted as a curse for those that are unclean. And through his blood, he's going to make it possible for the unclean to be made clean. 
to be forgiven, to be adopted, to be brought into the family of God. So I want to pray for you, and I want you to close your eyes and bow your heads for just a second. And I want you to take just a moment to take some inventory of where you feel resistance to following Christ. For the Christian and the non-Christian, where's that rub? Where's the place of resistance? Where do you feel the hesitation? Where is it that the cost of following Jesus might seem too much to you? And I want you to think about the two realities of who he is, the frightening power, the majesty of Jesus, but his tremendous tenderness, his love, his compassion, his gentleness. And I want you to take a second and offer him the resistance. Be it internal or external, offer it to him. Lord Jesus, would you help us today to trust you with our singleness, to trust you with difficult marriages, to trust you with our finances, to trust you with our bodies, to trust you with our children. We thank you that it's actually good news that you have all authority, that demons flee from you, that creation obeys you, that death obeys you, that disease obeys you. That's actually good news even though it's fearful because you've shown us tender mercy. And I pray that the places where we desperately need your cleaning, cleansing, renewing grace and power, that you would meet us there today.